0: Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. Today's guest is Christopher Guerrero, an expert in policy, campaign strategy, and legislative advocacy. We'll talk about the do's and don'ts in running a campaign for office and how queer and brown candidates can win. Thank you for following The Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. Latinos are almost 20% of the population of the United States. But according to the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, we only make 1.2% of office holders in the country. Yup, out of the hundreds of thousands of things you can run for in the U.S. Latinx folks only hold 6,700 local, state, and federal offices. The LGBTQ community just barely broke 1,000 office holders in this past November's election, so there's plenty of work to be done in that demographic also. It is important to not just focus on seats in Washington, D.C. Politics at the local level affects your daily life with greater impact, and laws move quicker than anything out of DC. For instance, school boards get to decide if Sylvia Rivera or Dolores Huerta will ever be in your history books. City Hall gets to decide if a minimum wage, which many minorities make a living with, will ever reach a living wage. And state legislatures decide if your taxes will return to your communities or if they will cover tax breaks For millionaires who have influenced them during election time. We need more Latinx and queer people to run for office and to make progressive change. And a gay Latino from California is working 24 7 to ensure that the next generation of office holders represents the diverse fabric of America. Christopher Guerrero was born to be involved in politics. His tall height, big smile, bursting personality, and great full head of thick hair, screams politician. But he instead decided to stay in the background and help elect others to move the progressive agenda forward. Christopher shares his long and interesting journey into politics that took him to both sides of the political spectrum before he found a permanent home. I want to welcome to the show my friend Christopher Guerrero, a political that I've met here almost, what, seven, eight years ago? Yeah in DC, and then you've been all over the place. You moved back to California. Now you're working for an agency that helps get progressive Latinos or progressive candidates across the board. Progressive candidates,
1: um, but we also do work for Democratic super PACs, uh, Democratic congressional committee, Democratic state legislative committees. We do work across the board, but all on the Democratic
0: or progressive side. That is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have lots to talk about. But before we get to all the juicy tales about how we're going to be looking you know, for 2022 and 2024, let's talk about you right now. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started.
1: Uh, sure. So um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles uh, in the Northeast neighborhood of LA, a neighborhood called Cypress Park. Um, my, both sides of my family are from there, coincidentally, my mom's side and my dad's side. And then for the latter half of my youth, I was raised in Highland Park, neighboring neighborhood, still Northeast LA, but a little more recognizable. Most people know Highland Park more so than Cypress Park. Um, went to school in the area, went to high school in the general area. Um, so, you know, I'm a Southern California boy. I'm an LA area boy and, you know, decided to get out of the area. And wanted to get as far away from Los Angeles as possible while still staying in California. And so I decided to go to UC Davis up by Sacramento, which was, you know, precisely that. As non-LA as you can get, but still being in, uh, in California.
0: What did you major in?
1: So that's an interesting question, actually. So it started in junior college. I did go to junior college for two years and then transferred. Um, but I did a music conservatory in junior college. I originally oh, wow. wanted to be a performer. So I went to a program called the Citrus Singers. It is a music dance theater performance program um, that d- feeds a lot into local community theater, uh, a lot of Disney cruise ships, items like that. And some of our more successful members have been on Broadway and have taken it all the way are now on TV. So it's a pretty renowned program. The citrus seniors at a citrus college but i think i picked up early on that that was not meant to be <laughs> that i was not going to go on and be the star um like
0: yet there's still there's still some years so I but i would crazy. actually well,
1: maybe <laughs> we'll see but i will actually say that the the discipline of that very intense program did train me a lot for what you know we do today in the political atmosphere so Um, I value that training very much, even though it wasn't the field I went into, so I did decide to transfer to UC Davis, and I majored in political science, I got a minor in gender and sexuality studies, one of the first colleges to have a program like that, I think UCLA had LGBTQ studies first, and UC Davis was catching up, um, but still on the forefront of of those programs at universities um, way back in the day. So, but my intention was to go into government and politics. And so I guess I'm one of the few people who actually studied political science in college who actually went on to do
0: politics, so. That uh, is a great background to have. And you definitely, when you walk into a room, Christopher, I've seen you, you command a presence. You can project your voice across the room. So your (laughs) theater training really helped you out Definitely uh, getting you notice as soon as you walk walk into a room, so what made you get into politics. So
1: a lot of that um, comes from my family, my family has been very politically aware very politically involved. Um, One of the reasons why I chose UC Davis on top of the you know geographical. um, reason that I mentioned earlier was also that I have a family legacy there. My great uncle was a student and a professor there. He was very active in the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s. He was a member of the Brown Berets. Um, you know, has a very proud history of being very active in that movement in California at that time, you know, a national tumultuous time, but you know, the the Chicano movement doesn't get a lot of the attention that the civil rights movement does, that the Stonewall movement does. Um, And it was very big, you know, you hear a lot of the story. Cesar Chavez came out of that, Uh, Dolores Huerta came out of that, and my uncle was a part of that, so I grew up with that culture. Um, My grandfather was also a Teamster, he drove trucks for the farms between Sacramento and Los Angeles, back and forth all over the state, he was very active in labor politics which were also very prevalent in the 60s and 70s, you know, especially around the Chicano movement, the Teamsters were very active in that movement. Um, And he was very active in LA politics, just as an activist, as a concerned citizen, you know, um, kind of at that time, you know, holding our elected officials accountable to the communities that work to that they worked to elect, and that they represented. So I've always had that in the background. My parents were also very politically aware, but also very Republican. You know, obviously my great uncle, my grandfather, my grandparents were all Democrats, but my parents were, you know, those young uh, Ronald Reagan Republicans of the '80s. Where a, a lot of Latino families in LA that grew up at that time, you know, went that way. I, we don't. I don't think we speak about that enough, and we're always surprised. When, what do you mean 20 or 30% of the Latino community voted for Trump or voted Republican? There's a lot that grew up that happened in that era that we don't really look at because we glaze over the fact that a lot of Latino families at that time grew up Republican, including my parents. So, you know, in high school, I was a young Republican and I touted my young Republicanism until my senior year. I actually interned for a congressman that represented our district out in the San Gabriel Valley, and long story short of it, I was just like, "I don't think I agree with you on anything." <laughs> I just always
0: coming into politics where you got the taste of both parties, and you got to make your independent choice after you kind of realize, okay, these platforms don't align with my value system. One hundred percent that's a great way that you were able to choose on your own rather than being told how to vote, you chose on your own.
1: Yeah, so have after having been a you know young Republican in high school and interning for a congressional member of Congress, um, on my 18th birthday, I registered as a Democrat and I've been a Democrat ever since. I volunteered for the Al Gore campaign in 2000, for the John Kerry campaign in 2004, that's you know, your heart all the all the <laughs> way to now yeah i don't yeah. have a track record of working no, on successful I mean, presidential candidates.
0: i supported those candidates back in 2000 and 2004 when i was waking up as a political activist mm-hmm. and i took those losses and it and it hurt me but it made me a better organizer it it recommitted me to the cause to make sure to get the vote out mm-hmm. like it probably did for you and i love that you're sharing all this history of all your grandfathers and great grandfathers that have been in the Chicano movement and how uh, you are honoring their service, their history by looking for candidates out there that could mm-hmm. take that cause that you, that they were fighting for, for equality, for Latinos. You know, that get to decide those candidates that are gonna be representing our people.
1: 100%. And also it's funny you mentioned, you know, equality. Yes. E- quality for the Chicano community, the Latino community, but also, you know, around this same time, I was coming out myself as a gay man and coming to terms with, you know, my place in the LGBTQ community, excuse me, and what that means and how that factors into my life and into my political beliefs and it all tied together. So um, that was also very important in kind of the development of my political career and the candidates I wanted to choose. And now even in the candidates we work with today, you know, my firm, JNC Strategies, we have a a great handful of strong LGBTQ candidates in Southern California running for the state legislature that we're very, very proud of. And, you know, it kind of all stems from that history, but it also is great to be able to work at a place where we get to advocate for the values that we truly believe in.
0: Yeah, this past election, there was like, a record number of people, even though mm-hmm. it looked like uh, the progressives took a hit, over a thousand candidates that are mm-hmm. LGBT now sit in office after this yeah. past election that we had in November, of 2021. A lot of candidates, and we finally broke that barrier of a thousand in office. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Absolutely, not nowhere near enough, but we're 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 finally right, running for office and getting elected. So your job is to find that perfect candidate to fill that, that position. Latinos are like the largest minority in the United States with more than 60 million of us, more than 60 million. We make up 18.4% of the population, but you wouldn't know our power by looking at what our representation in Congress is. You know, we got 535 members, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the representatives, but if you were to uh, tally all the Latinos, we only have 47 members who are in Washington, DC, that's less than 10%. What are we gonna do? What are the biggest obstacles to get Latinos into office that you've seen?
1: I mean, mean, that's a a harder and deeper question to answer. Um, It goes a long way of, you know, white institutionalist members you know hanging on to power for a long time you know across many generations not letting a younger generation come up maybe representing an area that is now predominantly latino but still represented by that member of congress who has been in that seat for a long time and is maybe still a good progressive democrat doing right by the community but um ethnically does not reflect the community right so Sometimes there isn't the opportunity for our members to step in, and sometimes there are. And that's, you know, we've been able to see, you mentioned those 47 numbers, which is, has doubled, I think, since I moved to D.C., you know, seven or eight years ago, maybe let's say 10 years generally. You know, it, it's happening, just not at the rate that, you know, reflects what America looks like. But, sure, you know, so- we're...
0: It was kind of hard to pose this question on you because there's just so many factors out there that keep us from this office. Access I know kept- to
1: resources, access to access. education. I mean, we can go on and on.
0: Yeah, like my point in Texas, where I grew up, mm-hmm. uh, I lived in Dallas. That was going to be my permanent home before I moved to DC. And people were always telling me, you should run for office. You should run for office. But when I looked at these offices that they wanted me to run for, they pay nothing. And I have student loans, a mom to take care of. So it's just like, I got to look, okay, how can I make a living when City Hall doesn't pay you enough? Yes. Or running for the state representative, the state legislature in Texas, you only get per diem. It's almost like these positions were made for rich white people as a hobby. Like this is their second life. Yes. they, They don't need to get paid. So it's almost like, you're not gonna be able to get that hardcore activist that represents the community Correct. in those positions because they're gonna have to get a full-time job on the side just to survive, you know? It's, yep. just, it's built for us, a system that was not built for us.
1: It's a, it's a big deterrent. Uh, in California, we have a full-time legislature and that legislature does pay a living wage, um, which allows people that you mentioned in our community The activists in our community to run for office. Now there's the barriers of raising money to run. There's, you know, we can dive into that conversation, but you know, it's it's important, or else we're gonna see what you see in Texas, where you have a legislature that is part-time, meets every other year, and was designed for land wealthy landowners who were white to have those positions of power to run the state government that benefited the powerful white landowners right there was it was a circular club where they just kept the power in their own range and we still see that today and like the texas legislature does not reflect the the state of texas in my opinion there's probably a lot of texans listening to this that may push back i say this as a californian and and an outside observer
0: but (laughs) it's sad because it's half of the state will be latino soon and it's or we have not reached those numbers yet but it's just nowhere near the representation that we need in Austin. Uh
1: right. And then we, uh, you still are able to get leaders to step up like Leticia Vandepute, who has been such a great leader in the Texas legislature, and Malady Gonzalez and so many others that are able to um start cracking that glass ceiling, so to speak, not to overuse that that uh analogy, but you know, it is possible. And we are seeing Latinos running for office in Texas, and you know. In a good year, if we do things right, you know we could see Ruben Ramirez, who's running in the Texas Fifteenth, or John Lira, who's running in the Texas Twenty Third. We have Greg Cesar uh, from the Texas Thirty Fifth. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunity for Latinos, and we just got to make sure that they're well resourced, that they're building great campaigns, that they're running smart campaigns, that they're tapping into that donor network, both local and national, getting the support that they need. And winning those campaigns. And we'll start to see, you know, policies that reflect what the citizens want.
0: So tell me, you've mentioned some names out there. Mm -hmm. Who makes a good candidate? Like, what are the characteristics of a good candidate? Like, if someone's listening to this podcast, they're thinking about (laughs) running, what is the magic recipe?
1: There, I will just say, there is no magic recipe. You need to, you need to be thick skinned, you need to be a hard worker, you need to be able to roll with punches, you need to be able to adapt, you need to be able to make spur the moment decisions. Sometimes those decisions don't provide the outcome you wanted, and you have to be able to pivot and continue going. You need to be just absolutely, I don't even know the word, you just have to be that hard working open-minded strong person and that's before you even start picking up the phone to call to raise money which is the hardest part i think personally that is probably- i think is the hardest part of running these campaigns if you don't have the money you're not going to be able to do the voter contact that you need to do uh period I
0: hate it. that's the one thing that kept me from like if I run, I have to beg for money and I hate begging for money. I don't mind asking for money for like my nonprofits, but asking money for myself to run, mm-hmm. I would have been like, oh, I hate this part. I hate this part. And I, I don't think I would have been as committed. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just, it's it's hard. It's hard. Yeah.
1: And you see a lot of great candidates. You see a lot of smart people who would be great policymakers that just aren't able to crack that nut and are not able to get past that hurdle and you know that can be the game every once in a while you get that that magic person that has that grassroots movement that's able to bring uh wind of folks with them and win but it is it is very rare and it's very hard and raising money is such a key element. And until we have campaign finance reform, until we have publicly funded campaigns, you know, it's it's going to be very hard for some people to run for office and to really get those people that should be in office into office.
0: Now, what are the red flags of a ca- person that should not? Like what's somebody that your agency would not touch?
1: Well, if you're a Republican. <laughs> <Let's>
0: <laughs> start so, right there. Yeah, but let's say uh, they're progressive. What are some of the things that you're like? No, you're you're not ready for this, or no, you're too eager for this, or you're you're just not well versed in the issues.
1: I don't I don't think there's a problem with being too eager. I think eager is good, and um, there's a couple ways to think about what eager means. Like one of the things that you know also is a deterrent for people running in our community is people saying, "Oh, wait your turn. It's not your time. Oh, that, there's other people that, in line."
0: That's th- gone out the window. All these young progressives—they're no longer yeah. waiting to turn, and that's actually and, helped them.
1: Yeah, I and agree, and I—I I support that. So I don't see eagerness as a deterrent. Um, Intention—why you want to run. Um, You look at a person's network, you look at their background, you look at their strengths. Is this something that, you know, we could actually build a campaign on? Are they in it for the right reason? And there's no perfect checklist where we go, you know, question by question to determine that it's a lot of it is gut feelings and instinct and personal connection. Um, There are some people that want to run just to get certain issues raised. You know, we, we our firm wants to represent candidates who want to win and go sit in the legislature or sit in city council or be the elected sheriff. Um, we probably wouldn't take a campaign of someone who's in it for the ideas or trying to push an agenda item or
0: it, so if some people sh- run
1: for office to be a spoiler, right? Oh, um, oh we probably wouldn't take someone like that, you know. We we believe in people who want to do good, and by doing good, by being in elected office. So we make those determines on a case by or those uh, we determine that on a case by case basis, and you know that's how we approach things. Same thing with the committees we work for. Um, you know, when you're working with the Democratic committees, their goal is to get Democrats elected, right? So it's very that's an easier decision to make. But depending on the super PAC, also depending on what you want to do. Um, We work with uh, a super PAC called Remove Ron in Florida, whose total and sole focus is highlighting how terrible Ron DeSantis is and working to elect a Democratic governor in Florida. You know, that's a cause we can get behind and We've worked to cut ads for them, that some of that have gone very viral and some that have been, even been carried on Fox News because they've carried the ad to say like, this is ridiculous and Democrats think this message works. Well, yeah, if it pissed off the Republicans and it's on Fox News, then yes, it did. And we're very excited about that. So, um, but coming back to your question, yeah, there's, there's no magic candidate. There's no magic bullet in my opinion. Um, it's, it's a recipe of things and you got to just see how they all fit together, how they all blend together. And if it fits, it fits. And if it doesn't, you can tell and you you make that decision from there.
0: So if there is a listener that wanted to run for office today and they're just finished listening to the podcast, what three things do you recommend they do? Just One,
1: get involved in your community. It is very hard to start a campaign um, when the community that you're running to represent doesn't know you. You wanna be involved, whether it's through the democratic activism or through local initiatives, nonprofits, whatever it is, You know, community engagement is very important in that regard. Um, start looking at your network. Um, really think, will I have the ability to raise money to do this. And maybe that'll determine the race that you want to you wanna run for. Maybe you want to go right out the gate and run for state senate in the state that you live in. That's great, but look at what the average state senate campaign costs and think, do I have the network to to build that or to work towards that? And then, you know, and this is a personal opinion, think about your life and how much of your life you want to be in the public eye um privacy goes right out the window when you run for office and everything's fair game that is very hard um it's very hard on families so you have to make that choice for yourself and for your family if you want to do that so those are those are three things that i would look at right now
0: great uh, points that you made great advice the last one is something like are you ready you know to dance with the devil because it's just it's a hard life and yes. like you like you said you got to have thick skin because people are going to that never met you the day before, you know, that don't know you will learn about you, will research you, will attack you to try mm-hmm. to take you down. Nothing personal, they just want to get their guy elected. So be ready for that life. Yeah. That that's going to dictate how you move forward, you know, move on and have to engage with the public. But there's also good. You're going to be able to work for the community and do yes. a lot of good stuff in that position of power that you've been, um, that you will hold. Right. How can people learn more about your agency? What um,
1: you? sure. So like I mentioned earlier, I work for a political consulting firm named JNZ strategies. Um, our website is jzstrategies.com. Um, the full name is Jacobson Jacobson Zilber. Um, Our two founders, Dave Jacobson and Max Zilber, are two very smart political operatives that live and work in California, that have worked nationally, that are brilliant, and have won many, many successful campaigns. And uh, it's their firm. And we have a team of about 12. And yeah, you can look us up at jayzstrategies.com. You can go to About Us. And it has our entire firm, all of the, the folks that work at our firm. It has samples of all of our work. You can follow us on Twitter at jay-z-strategies. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Christopher1127. Um, I retweet mostly politics and a lot of information about our candidates and the issues and causes that we support. And yeah, that that would be the best way. I say go to our website. We have a lot of the work that we do on our website.
0: One last question. Who are your dream candidates for 2028?
1: 2028. So um, there's, of course, you know, the prospect that we have Joe Biden for the full eight years. Um, at that point, I assume we would be looking at Vice President Kamala Harris running for office.
0: Fellow um, Californian.
1: Fellow Californian. Of course, there's another Californian that is a rising star in the Democratic Party, um, California or United States Senator from California, Alex Badia the first uh, Latino to represent California in the United States Senate, who has been doing a spectacular job, if I may. Um, He is absolutely a candidate that we could see running for higher office. Um, And, you know, there's a, there's a long bench of folks that can rise during that time. Maybe not as long a bench as we, hope for, and hopefully over the next eight years, we start cultivating these candidates, these senators, that the John Ossoffs, the, the Warnocks, um, these are all people that can rise up to the challenge of running to be the next president of the United States. Um, you know, there's all of these rumors on whether Joe Biden will run for a second term or not. So that means that then you have Kamala Harris running for president, which pushes pushes 2028 to 2032, right? so. There's a lot of things that can happen, but we have, we do have some very strong leaders who could step up. Um, I would like to see the younger generation step up. I would like to see the younger generation of color step up to be those names, those faces, the Kamala Harris's, the Alex Bavias, um, and so many others. I highlight those two as a biased Californian, of course, Um, (laughs) but there were many, many others. There's a, the current Secretary of State for the state of Rhode Island, uh, Nelly Gorbea, uh, Puerto Rican, she's running for governor in Rhode Island. If she has a when she has a successful gubernatorial term, could be a national contender. You never know. There's a there's a lot of opportunity for people that are coming through the political system, and we have a lot of statewide strong Latino leaders that are starting to come in and take their place, make their voices heard, and hopefully we see them starting to run for top of the ticket in the coming years.
0: And Christopher Guerrero will be there being the kingmaker.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that,
0: but we'll try to do good work at the very we'll, least. he will be working uh, those campaigns like you've done in the past. Yes. And I just want to say thank you so much for your work in Progressive Causes and for your friendship. And I can't wait to see you again in person, Christopher. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jesse. This has been fantastic.